Hey everyone, it's Whitney, and I'm back with another episode of PS Editor's Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jonathan Stein, PS Managing Editor, and we are going to talk about Brexit. Um, The Brexit situation has not been getting a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks, but the process is moving along, if not quite smoothly. That's right. Talks began this week uh, in Brussels again, and it's not going well. Um, We're going to look at why and uh, how that could change or not uh, with the help of uh, Project Syndicate contributor Philippe Legrain. Philippe is a former economic advisor at the European Commission and a visiting senior fellow at the LSE's European Institute. He's written quite a few PS pieces on Brexit, so we're going to give him a call and see what his thoughts on the latest developments are. Hi, Philippe. Hi, Dan. Hi, it's uh, Whitney. I'm here with Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on PS Editor's Podcast. Hi, it's great to be with you. Um, so we wanted to focus today on the Brexit negotiations. Um, you know, they've just restarted. Um, they're not going particularly well. Um, the the dy- There seems to be push and pull. There's a bit of a deadlock over the Brexit bill. Um And the UK has recently released some position papers that seem to show some concessions, um, including related to the ECJ, for example. So I guess we would like to start um, with the kind of state of play of the of the negotiations, um, what those concessions are, what do they tell us about the power dynamics of the negotiations? Okay, sure. Well, I mean, the EU has set out very clearly its position, uh, which is the first stage of negotiations and needs to address the issue of uh, citizens' rights after Brexit, um, uh, the Brexit divorce bill, uh, and uh, the status of uh, Northern Ireland and avoiding a hard border uh, before moving on to uh, negotiating um, the outlines of a future trading arrangement. And the UK sort of disputes uh, that order, but, so, but really there's nothing much that they can do about it. Uh, and uh, the EU has to judge that there has been sufficient progress uh, on uh, those three initial issues before they're even willing to discuss um, uh, the future trade uh, discussions. Uh, and so far, uh, it's pretty clear the EU doesn't think there has been uh, sufficient progress. Indeed, uh, the, Commission, the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, this week was quite dismissive, I think probably a bit undiplomatically so, but quite dismissive uh, about um, uh, the various position papers that the British uh, have produced. Um, on citizens' rights, I mean, uh, basically, uh, the UK thinks it's made a generous offer. Uh, the EU thinks that um, uh, those rights aren't guaranteed in future uh, and that the European Court of Justice needs to be involved in order to guarantee those rights. Uh, and uh, the UK is is very wary of having uh, a European court still having jurisdiction uh, in Britain uh, after a Brexit, given uh, the political imperative to sort of take so-called take back control over our borders and our laws uh, and so on. Uh, on the second issue of the Brexit bill, I mean, the EU has been talking about numbers up to gross 100 billion euros, net uh, 60 billion euros. Those are obviously uh, huge figures uh, as a headline basis and politically unacceptable um, uh, to the UK. The UK isn't even willing 
uh, to come up with his own um, uh, notion about how much um, uh, the bill should be. Uh, and I, that, I think, is going to be um, uh, the major uh, sticking point. Uh, if the UK isn't willing to even provide an, an idea of how much they're willing to pay, I don't see uh, the EU being willing to move on uh, to the next stage. And then you have um, uh, Northern Ireland, where you know there is kind of magical thinking going on on uh, the UK side, whereby officially the UK says we're going to leave the single market, we're going to leave um, uh, the customs union, uh, that, uh, and we're going to introduce immigration controls um, uh, for EU citizens. And that logically requires uh, a border between Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic. Uh, and uh, you know, the position paper of uh, the British government which seems to suggest that somehow this can be avoided through technological means or otherwise, simply isn't uh, convincing at all. And clearly the big danger there is that if you do see the introduction of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, that you destabilise uh, the hard-won uh, peace process, uh, you disrupt um, uh, the economy, and indeed you can throw um, uh, the region uh, into a turmoil. So, um, and I think we're we're long, long way from su sufficient progress by the October uh, European Council, and that risk being put back uh, to December or later, which leaves very little time indeed uh, to discuss um, both a transition period after Britain leaves the EU in March 2019, uh, and indeed um, where the ultimate destination might be. Uh, Philip, if I can just jump in here, it does so sound like the whole process is kind of, there's kind of a through the looking glass uh, uh, sense about it, that the idea that uh, that this is going to take place in two years, that, the, that it will be all negotiated and that a transition agreement will be reached. And that, that kind of uh, through the looking glass uh, environment or atmosphere seems to permeate British politics domestically. Uh, after the snap election, uh, you know, uh, Theresa May did not get a majority. Uh, that's weakened uh, the government. But and, and it seems to have benefited Labour, in part because a lot of young people who sat out the Brexit referendum are now, uh, you know, re reacting and, and, and flooded to Corbyn. But what exactly is Corbyn's position? We've had uh, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, Labour MP and Shadow Brexit Secretary, say that he wants to the UK to remain a member of the single market through an extended transition period, possibly with some immigration controls. How, how realistic is this? I think you're right to, to point out that British politics uh, is in flux uh, since uh, the elections uh, in June, which the Conservatives were expected to win with a landslide uh, and where they lost their majority, uh, and where Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, uh, which was expected to do uh, awfully, um, uh, did uh, much better uh, than inspected, expected. And that's destabilised um, the government, it's destabilised uh, the Conservative Party, and it's thrown everything into flux. I mean, the government isn't only negotiating uh, with the EU, uh, it's also negotiating uh, within itself uh, about what its objectives should be, um, whether there should be a transition period, what that should consist of, what the ultimate objective should be, uh, where, the, um, uh, where there may be room for compromise. Uh, and um, uh, the Labour Party, uh, which went into the election um, saying that, it, like the, the Conservatives, uh, they wanted to uh, leave the single market and go for a so-called hard Brexit uh, has, at least according to its Brexit spokesman, uh, changed its position uh, and now uh, is open to uh, staying within both the single market 
and the customs union within a transition period after um, after Britain leaves for you know, a few years and perhaps indefinitely. And clearly, uh, given that the government is going to be needing Parliament's approval for its EU withdrawal bill, that provides all sorts of opportunities um, for um, uh, Labour to try and uh, win votes against the government uh, to get uh, pro-European uh, Tories, or at least pro-soft Brexit Tories, um, uh, to vote with them. Uh, and it's possible that this is going to force the government uh, into uh, seeking uh, a softer Brexit than they otherwise might want. Indeed, a transition period that mimics uh, the current arrangements with the EU um, simply but without uh, the political representation uh, or um, uh, obviously a, a say in setting uh, the rules. Um, I think you know, the, the, the other big fear is that um, motivating the Conservatives is that uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party uh, could win um, uh, the next election. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn is pretty hard left um, in terms of the manifesto that he committed to, in terms of his you know, inclinations and, and, and past positions, uh, extremely hard left, vehemently anti-American, pro-Venezuela, anti-NATO, anti-nuclear weapons, um, uh, pro-Russian, uh, and um, pro-nationalisation, and therefore strikes the fear of God into Conservatives. Uh, and uh, that, in part, creates a discipline uh, within the Conservative Party that they need to stick with the government um, and uh, not destabilise matters too much and therefore prompt an election. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, on the other hand, um, it, um, it uh, opens up uh, the possibility uh, of compromise uh, in order to get Brexit through while causing the minimum disruption uh, and without late letting uh, Labour into office uh, at the next election. Um, I think the, the, the bigger agenda is that uh, it has highlighted that the discontent that many people feel in Britain um, is not simply um, uh, expressed or isn't simply uh, solved by uh, leaving the EU. Indeed, in my view, leaving the EU is going to make um, matters worse for those people who feel left behind or, or living in deprived areas of the country uh, or who are angry uh, about uh, politicians who lie uh, and don't respond to their needs. Um, but it, it, it's highlighted that Brexit is not the only thing expression of, of that anger and discontent, that many people are angry uh, and discontented um, with an economic system they feel is unjust, um, with a combination of bank bailouts uh, and austerity, with the fact that there are sky-high housing prices which young people can't afford, um, uh, and uh, a pension system that uh, is not unlikely to be there uh, when they do eventually um, uh, retire, uh, and a feeling that basically um, uh, the politics is run uh, for uh, the uh, old and for the rich. Philip, can I just uh, jump in? I want to ask a question. Is Brexit exacerbating the situation? Uh, because it, it seemed, you know, after the referendum, everybody said, oh, this is the end of Britain. And the British economy didn't exactly suffer. But n now it seems that, you know, th there's more depreciation of the currency. Inflation has become a bit of a problem. Is the situation getting worse? Are people going to feel this in their pocketbooks? Uh, uh, aside from the domestic drivers of, of people's economic frustration, is Brexit going to add to this? Well, yes, I think it will. I mean, that's the tragedy of Brexit is that 
um, you know, some people who voted for Brexit are old, rich, and simply um, you know want to turn the clock back to the past uh, of imperial Britain when they were still young and Britain was all white. Uh, and other people voted for Brexit because they were unhappy um, and uh, they felt left behind, neglected, suffering economically. Uh, and the, those people um, are, are likely to suffer because of Brexit. We've already seen uh, inflation rising uh, so that real wages uh, are falling. Uh, if we leave the single market and the customs union, that's going to disrupt our trade with Europe uh, and likely uh, cause for, further falls in living standards uh, and uh, job losses. And if you look at the map of the areas that voted leave, uh, very often the, they are those that export most of the EU uh, and receive most EU money and therefore be, will be hardest hit by it. And if, for example, you work for Nissan in Sunderland uh, making cars uh, and um, that car factory um, uh, were to close or shrink, uh, there aren't a host of other manufacturing jobs uh, that could employ such people uh, and therefore uh, those people um, uh, would be uh, left uh, high and dry. That's the tragedy. I mean, it's quite understandable that some people are unhappy. Unfortunately, Brexit isn't um, the solution. Uh, it's going to make matters worse. So we've discussed a lot about the internal dynamics within the UK, but if we go back to earlier in the discussion when we were talking about the negotiations, it seemed pretty clear that the EU kind of holds all of the cards. The EU is the one that can say, we're not going to discuss this until we make progress in the in the areas that are interesting to us. Um, so I guess the, the the recent labor shift, which talks about remaining in the single market, for example, um, the idea is that they would just get tighter immigration restrictions or the UK would, would have that concession from the EU and then maybe we can all agree on a single market. But of course, the EU's incentives are quite different from the UK's incentives and the EU has all types of other pressures and risks that it faces in making those kinds of concessions. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, they kind of wanted to deter other countries from doing the same thing, saying we want the single market, but immigration controls. So, so uh, how does this how does this play out? I guess the fundamental question is: Is hard Brexit hardwired into this process, or is there a way to soften it? Well, I mean, uh, I strongly was on the Remain side uh, in uh, the referendum campaign, but and uh, but one of um, the many delusions or one of the delusions that exists on, on the Remain side and continues, continues to exist on those who um, wish Britain would remain in the EU is the idea that somehow if, if we decided to stay uh, or decided to uh, remain in the single market, that the EU uh, would agree um, to uh, immigration controls in order to keep Britain in. I mean, David Cameron um, set out to uh, achieve uh, immigration restrictions within the EU um, when he was trying to renegotiate, renegotiate Britain's membership before the referendum, uh, and he achieved uh, only um, token changes uh, on um, uh, welfare eligibility. Uh, Chancellor Merkel has been very clear that there could be no cherry-picking about you know, the four fundamental freedoms uh, of uh, the single market, uh, one of which is uh, the free movement of people. And from an EU perspective, it all seems you know, kind of rich because you know, Britain was very forceful uh, in saying that, the, and rightly so, that the EU needed to enlarge to the east, uh, welcome in uh, Poland and the other ex-communist countries um, uh, soon. Uh, and uh, Britain was one of the three countries which immediately opened up uh, its labour markets uh, to workers from those countries. 
And so, uh, and, and now suddenly Britain is saying, well, um, uh, you did what we wanted uh, and uh, we don't like the consequences and we want to change everything to suit our purposes. And from the point of view um, of the EU, both as a matter of principle uh, and as a result of that uh, history, it is simply um, uh, no way. Uh, no way, obviously, from um, those countries which send migrants um, to uh, Britain and who don't want to be discriminated against. Uh, no way uh, from Germans and others who believe in the in integrity uh, of um, uh, the current EU system. Uh, and um, uh, no way um, from those in Brussels or elsewhere uh, who are keen on closer integration, uh, not a la carte uh, disintegration. Um, so I think that's, that, 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 that's just a delusion. Um, the only way in which you can control migration uh, within the EU uh, is um, through um, internally, internal restrictions uh, about eligi eligibility for welfare, for example, I think a contributory, contributory welfare, welfare system, which Britain uh, doesn't have. And those are rules which will be applied equally to uh, residents uh, and uh, other EU citizens. Since the UK isn't going down that route, I, I think that it's pie in the sky to think that suddenly uh, having you know, caused this huge crisis in the EU, uh, that suddenly uh, if um, uh, Britain changed its mind, the EU would um, uh, grant um, uh, those uh, concessions. Now, you're also right to say that you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's obviously a broader fear uh, that Brexit was going to spark disintegration of the EU. To a, less, to a certain extent, those fears have attenuated thanks to the victory of Emmanuel Macron in France and the poor showing of um, Herd Wilders uh, in the Netherlands. So it seems that for now that there aren't going to be uh, other countries following uh, Britain and indeed the shambles and the chaos that you know, we've seen in, in Britain since the vote is also um, uh, a deterrent. That said, you know, there are strong disintegration forces short of exit and you can see that in terms of uh, Poland and Hungary uh, trampling uh, on uh, key EU values like um, the rule of law uh, and liberal democracy uh, with impunity. Or you can see that uh, through the de facto collapse uh, of the Schengen area um, of open borders uh, since the refugee crisis, or indeed many countries' refusal uh, to um, relocate refugees uh, as a result uh, of uh, the crisis. So I suppose we should conclude with um, what Brexit could look like. I mean, time is running out. There's supposed to be only two years for negotiation, at least to negotiate a transitional agreement. We've got this deadlock. Britain's still got these pie-in-the-sky ideas, as you mentioned. So what do you think is actually feasible or likely to happen when these two years are up? Well, I think there's still um, a, a genuine threat or genuine risk um, that Britain could crash out without a deal. Uh, and the obvious bone of contention could be um, the divorce bill that could simply be uh, unacceptable. Um, let's assume instead um, that we have a transition period uh, that involves uh, Britain continuing to make budget contributions, which reduces that Brexit bill and makes it more palatable, uh, and a transition deal that involves staying you know, in or pretty near to um, uh, the single market uh, and uh, the customs union, uh, then you know, the aim as of now, and it's shared by both parties, is that at the end of it, you get a so-called hard Brexit, leaving the single market and the customs union, going it alone, setting your own regulation, uh, pursuing independent trade deals, uh, and so on. 
the calculation that those who want Britain to stay in the EU or have as close relations as possible is that by the time the transition period has elapsed, we're in, say, 2022, six years after the referendum, people may have changed their mind uh, on Brexit. They may Passions may not be as strong as they are now. And at that stage, people might decide, actually, well, you know, either we persist um, with a so-called soft Brexit, though that's quite unpalatable because it means being a rule taker, um, or uh, we simply um, uh, reapply uh, to join uh, the EU, though that in itself would be difficult because um, it, would, it would entail most likely having to commit to joining the euro at some point and indeed not having the opt-outs that the current that the EU, that Britain currently enjoys uh, in um, uh, the EU. Um, so there's all sorts of things to play for. And given how unstable and unpredictable politics is at the moment, um, uh, it's very hard to say uh, how it's all going to turn out. Well, thank you so much for giving us your insight into what is clearly a fast-changing and very complicated situation. (laughs) Great. It's good talking to you. Bye. Bye. Well, you know, Whitney, I think it was pretty clear, not only from uh, Philippe's commentaries for us, but from that discussion we just had, that uh, that uh, Brexit is uh, a mess. Uh, you know, we knew that, anticipated it going in, but at some point, you know, you think, okay, there've got to be some grown-up technocrats in the room who can sort all of this out. But it really does seem like uh, uh, like Brexit means Brexit, that all of this uh, confusion about what does the referendum question actually mean, which was all you know legitimate to ask as a, as a matter of democratic theory or referenda, the way to decide these issues, really the bottom line is that Brexit does mean Brexit, that there is no uh, softer way to do this. Well, and the UK, too, hasn't given up on a lot of these pie-in-the-sky ideas. That's kind of a consistent theme. During the Brexit campaign, there was very much discussion about these promises that were unreasonable, never going to play out. And over a year after that vote, a lot of these same kinds of have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too impossible ideas are still being put forward. Yeah, it really is kind of like this Trump world alternative reality, uh, you know, with with our own facts. Um, And unfortunately, it seems like Labor is not really going to help the situation uh, with respect to uh, to Brexit. I thought that Philippe made a very good point about um, Corbyn's uh, uh, domestic politics, his 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 uh, his 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 leftism uh, disciplining um, the conservatives. I think that's a very valid point. They're going to stick together and support the government in order to prevent a Labor victory. But that doesn't really move a, uh, move the country or move the process of Brexit forward. Yeah, that seems like a holding pattern. Yeah, impossible ideas. Right. What's going to happen? Well, not certainly not the last that we've heard of uh, that we've heard of the situation. It's going to probably heat up quite a bit more uh, in the next couple of years. Um, so, uh, to listeners of the podcast, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. Be sure and rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Whitney Arana. I'm Jonathan Stein. Thanks for listening.